Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray now that you would be worshipped and honored by the attention that we give to it. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through it by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us what you want to say, and that we would listen with open ears and open hearts. And so I pray that you would just have your way with us tonight, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, three more weeks in the book of Revelation, which means three more times we get to talk about the fact that Revelation is a pretty straightforward book to understand if you understand one thing, and that is that it's the book of Revelation singular. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. This is not a book of revelations. This is not a book primarily about who's the Antichrist and what does the number 666 mean and who's the harlot and who's the prophet and who's the beast with ten horns. It's a book about Jesus Christ revealing himself. And if you understand that as the premise of the book, then everything else falls into place very appropriately. So we understand that first and foremost. Second of all, we understand that when we read prophecy, as often as possible, we interpret it as literally as possible because we have the first coming of Jesus Christ to look back at and read the prophecies about that coming and we realize they were fulfilled very, very literally in almost every instance. And so when we look at future prophecies about the second coming of Jesus Christ, we say, well, probably the best way to interpret it is that it will be fulfilled very literally, perhaps even more literally than we are capable of understanding right now. And so we say, well, there are parts of this that seem kind of odd, but you know what? Until we're told otherwise, we'll assume they're literal. And there are some parts, you know, last week there was a chunk, and next week there will be a chunk where there is some imagery that scriptures are giving to make a spiritual point. And so we do understand and recognize those. But on the whole, we seek to understand the book of Revelation as literally as possible. And then we also understand chapter 1, verse 19, gives us an outline of the book. You would think I would have stuck a bookmark there. But Jesus speaks to John, and he says, Write the things that you have seen. That's chapter 1. The things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, that's what's known as the church age, and the things which will take place after this. And that's after the church age, after, we talked about when we were there, after the rapture of the church, when Christ removes the church from the presence of the earth, and then that removal sets the stage for then all the final judgments of the earth to take place. And the final judgment of the earth is essentially Jesus reclaiming the earth and saying, this belongs to me, it no longer belongs to the power of Satan. And I'm taking back what is rightfully mine. And so it's a judgment of God upon the wickedness of Satan, upon the wickedness of men, and upon the world system that seeks to attack the church, attack the plan of God, attack what God has created. And so that's where we find ourselves. And tonight we come into chapters 15 and 16. We're really in the, the very tail end of the book. But what we're going to do is we're going to read chapter 15 all the way through, and then we'll go back through it in chunks, because it's only eight verses, and I tried to find a way to break it up, and it doesn't make sense unless you read the whole thing all at once. So, with that being said, chapter 15, verse 1. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark. And over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, 
saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, having their chest girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So what we are about to see is the seven final judgments of God upon the earth. And John is just giving this to us as straightforwardly as he can, and so we're going to read them and interpret them as straightforwardly as he can. But he says, I saw another sign, verse 1, that was great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. What we're going to read tonight is, in essence, the end of the end of the judgments of God. And so with that, we just need to sort of preface it and say, tonight's a pretty gnarly chunk of Scripture, okay? Like, we got three more weeks in Revelation, and then we finish the Bible and we jump to Genesis. Truth be told, I'm getting kind of stoked for Genesis. But in this, what we're going to read, we're going to read the completion of the wrath of God. So he says in verse 2 that he sees something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. I have no idea what that looks like. And truthfully, none of you do either, right? But John sees it. He says, it looked like a sea of glass with fire mixed into it. And we say, you know what? When we see it, I bet we'll say, oh, I would have called that a sea of glass mingled with fire. Yeah, kind of makes sense. And he says he sees those who have victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. He sees those who have had victory over the beast standing on this sea, and they have harps, and they are singing praise to God. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Last week, we read in chapter 13 about the rise of the Antichrist. And it says in chapter 13, verse 7, that it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So in chapter 13, we're told that the Antichrist will be given power to overcome the saints. And we talked about there's a difference at this point because the church has been removed that as people are coming to the Lord, that Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. But in this end of the end, the Antichrist will, in essence, overcome individual Christians. To be a Christian at this point in the Great Tribulation is going to equal being a martyr. And so it says the Antichrist, he's given power to overcome them. But what's it say in chapter 15? They had victory over the beast. They had victory over his image. They had victory over his mark. They had victory over the number of his name. So wait a second. The beast overcame them, but they won. How's that work? Well, if you would, or if you wouldn't, either way, uh, you can flip over to the book of Philippians. And in Philippians, Paul gives us an insight into this. Because Paul, as he's writing the book of Philippians, is in prison for being a, a Christian. And he's writing and he's saying, hey, you know what? Basically, some people are taking advantage of the fact that I'm in prison. Some people are spreading the gospel out of goodwill. Some people are spreading the gospel out of selfish will. I'm hoping to be set free soon. I'm not really sure what's going to happen. But in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, 
as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you remember last year when we were in Philippians, we talked about this. That Paul has an understanding of what it means to walk with Christ, where he says, if I live, that's for the glory of Christ. And if I die, that's for the glory of Christ. I win either way. And you can't defeat somebody who wins regardless of what you do to them. Right? I mean, I mean you think about Satan trying to attack the apostle Paul, and he says, ha-ha, we're going to kill you. And Paul says, sweet, go to be with Jesus. He says, okay, change the plans. We're going to keep you alive. And Paul says, sweet, I'll just write more of the Bible. And he goes, oh, snap. Like, there, like there's, there's a limited number of options here, right? Either we kill him or we keep him alive. And either way, he still is coming out the winner. And it's the same thing here, where for these saints, these believers in Christ, at the end of the tribulation, the beast is going to overcome them. But guess what? They overcome the beast. The beast wins. But guess what? The beast loses. Right? Because if you, if, if you can say, like Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain, you cannot be defeated. If you say to live is anything else, then, then it all hinges on, well, I hope I'm right. But if to live is Christ and, it, and to die is gain, then everything hinges on, is Christ who he said he was? Is he who he, said he, who, who he says he is? And if that's true, then it doesn't matter what happens. We win. And sometimes we, you know, we forget because we, sometimes the idea of victory in Christ has been so abused by those who want to make it a, uh, you know, claim your wealth and your prosperity in this life that we forget how much victory we actually have. Sometimes we say, well, you know, let's not, let's not talk about claiming victory because um, we're not those kinds of Christians, right? And you know who those kinds are. They're the fun ones, but they make us all nervous. Gosh dang it. Um, well, they do. But, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> but we have victory. Nothing can defeat us. Now, that's not to say that life's easy. Life is brutal. But nothing can defeat us. Paul said, I'm convinced that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. That includes the Antichrist, the, 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 the fullest embodiment of evil that the world will ever see cannot separate a believer from the love of Christ. He can take your head from your body and separate those two, but he cannot separate a believer from the love of Christ. Now, that's still, Scripture's giving us both to say, hey, there's, there's massive encouragement. If you, are, if you have delayed accepting Christ and you find yourself in this situation at the end of time, there's going to be encouragement to say, okay, I'll be with Christ. But it's also a strong warning. Hey, he will overcome you. He will kill you. So don't waste your time waiting around for this. Get saved. Get yourself in a relationship with Christ so that you don't have to go through this. But if you are reading this at some point, if, if there's a time and place when a Christian will be reading this, having come to Christ after the rapture, they're going to realize, okay, I can still have victory. And they're proclaiming, they sing, it says verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. So evidently what we read here is a song that Moses wrote. And they say, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways. And it's interesting to understand that in context because we're going to read tonight some, what feels like some brutal judgments of God. And if we're not careful, we say, well, I don't, I don't know if God's being really fair here. 
And the saints who have come through the tribulation say, you know what? You are great and marvelous in what you're doing, and your ways are just and they are true. And they say, they specify three reasons why. For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. And for your judgments have been manifested. Now think about that for a second. They say, just and true are your ways in verse 3. And in verse 4, they say, for or because your judgments have been manifested. The truth and justice of God is not in spite of his judgments. It's actually because of his judgments. And that sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our heads around, but we have to understand this context that in order for the Lord to be who he says he is, he has to be consistent. And in the same way, if you've ever seen a parent who always threatens their children but never disciplines their children, after a while, the kids figure it out, right? If there is never an actual follow-through, then the parents don't actually love the child. And the Lord says, I, you know, the definition of God, God is love. But love is tempered with justice. Love cannot exist apart from a willingness to deal with something that threatens your love. Right? You see, I mean, you see it everywhere. You see the whole, like, hate has no home here. You see the sign. Right? It's, it's, you see it on houses. That's a lie. Hate exists everywhere love exists. They are complements to each other. They are not contradictory. Because if you love something, you hate whatever threatens that. Right? Because if I love something and I refuse to hate anything that will destroy that, then I don't actually love that. And so, understand what we're reading about when we read the judgment of God, we're actually, in essence, reading the proof of his love. Because he loves something so passionately that he's willing to destroy the evil that would come against it. Okay? And so, they say, just and true are your ways, for your judgments have been manifested. And then for the end of the chapter, he says he sees the temple of the tabernacle opened and these seven final judgments are passed out. Hebrews talks a lot about this, that there's a tabernacle of some sort in heaven. And in essence, everything we see on earth is a shadow of the real version. There's a, a real Ark of the Covenant. There's a real tabernacle. There's a, there's a real Jerusalem. And even we understand for ourselves that you know, we talk about a new body. Really, this is our... This is sort of our temporary body. Our real body is coming. It's not here yet. Right? C.S. Lewis called, these the, called earth the shadow lands. He said, everything we experience right here is just a shadow. We have no idea what real even is. Okay? And so there's a, there's a, the real tabernacle is opened, and the temple is filled with smoke from the glory of God. So chapter 16. He says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. Verse 2, so the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So some sort of sore comes specifically upon those who have the mark of the beast and who worship the image of the beast that the false prophet will create. We talked about this all last week. And what is it? I don't know. But it's a foul and loathsome sore. Some people speculate, you know, if, if the mark of the beast is to be some kind of microchip implant, it could be a chip malfunction, right? I mean, we, we understand 
very well that governments will sometimes push things that are not necessarily in the best interest of the people. And they may say it's for your own health and safety and wellness, and then a little later say, oh, sorry, we didn't realize that was, that was a problem. Or, oh, maybe we glossed over that. Or, oh, just never mind. Right? It's entirely possible. That's what it is. And, and again, we don't know, but it could be a chip malfunction. It could be the, you know, the chip gets hacked by a rogue operative. I don't know. But it's specifically, it could just be a specific disease that, comes up, that the Lord sends upon the people who have the mark of the beast. Okay, there could be a thousand different things, but it's specific here. We're seeing the judgment of God clarify, because we talked about all through this book, the, the purpose of the Great Tribulation is to clarify the gospel. And by the end of the Great Tribulation, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There, is, there are no indifferent people. There are people who say, I will serve Jesus Christ no matter what. And there are people who say, I will not serve Jesus Christ no matter what. And the Lord is clarifying, and every judgment is an opportunity to further clarify and to make sure that everyone understands that they are on one side or the other, and they are setting themselves up for one life or the other. Verse 3. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. So, some people read this and say, I bet it turns to literal blood. Because we generally interpret prophecy literally. Some people read this and say, maybe it's a global, worldwide red tide or some kind of equivalent. It could be that. I'm inclined to think that it's probably literal blood because Scripture tends to, you tend to see prophecy fulfilled very literally. But either way, every living creature in the sea dies. Now, earlier in the book, we've already read that a third of all, living, all life in the sea has died. Now, all the rest of it is dead. What happens when the oceans become just death? I mean, think about just, first of all, the smell. Right? Have you ever been, whether or not it's a red tide or something else, have you ever been in an area where there was a red tide? I remember one time we, we went on vacation to a beach about two weeks after a red tide had happened. And like our whole family just kind of coughed our way through that whole vacation. And you just kind of, your eyes just kind of, you know, did something. And you kind of had this, like, you weren't sick, but there, you weren't well, Right? And you want, you want to go for a walk on the beach, and there were still just dead fish rolling up. And there's just kind of, you step outside, and you're like, that doesn't smell right. And this was like a couple weeks after it had happened. What happens if the entire world experiences the death of all sea life? Think about the smell. Think about the loss of oxygen supply, because the majority of the Earth's oxygen is produced underwater. Think about just the amount of bacteria that's going to start forming on the earth if there's that much death and decay, right? This is, not, this is not good. This is some of the final judgment of God. Verse 4, Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be. Because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So all fresh water turns to blood now. And some people say, well, maybe it's just you know, rivers and springs that could leave lakes and ponds. Some people say maybe this leaves all water that's stored up, you know, all bottled water, all, all whatever. Um, that could be, certainly could be. But either way, at this point, the world was running out of water. 
you can't live too long without water, right? There's a reason in Matthew 24, Jesus said, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And so we, you know, we don't know exactly how long this final period of the judgment is, but it could be a matter of days or weeks because this is, this is ratcheting up so fast and the Lord is clarifying so pointedly that the world is quickly reaching a point of no survival. All right? But notice what the angel says. Again, he says, you are righteous because you have judged these things. He says, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you've given them blood to drink. It is their just due. The world has shed a lot of innocent blood. And the Lord will hold it accountable. And sometimes, you know, I think it's, it's helpful sometimes when we read about the judgment of God, especially if we're tempted to think God is being a little harsh. I mean this kindly, but oftentimes, people who are concerned that God is being harsh, I think have it fairly soft in life. Right? I mean, we're all sitting in a room, the, the heater just kicked on to keep us all comfortable, we all just ate a meal together. For most of us, it was our third meal of the day. Right? Most of us didn't worry about whether or not we were going to get killed on the way coming to church. I mean, depending on how your husband drives. Most of us just kind of come on Wednesday nights because it's what we do. We're not worried about anybody storming the building right now. Right? We all, most of us all have a physical Bible in our hands. We've got a pretty cushy life. Right? Right now, our, most of us, our biggest complaint is that we've got to get our taxes ready for tax season. And it's a percentage of the money we already made. Right? We're complaining about the fact that we already made money. And so if, we, if, you, if that's our perspective, and that's not to demean any of that, we're super blessed by the Lord in that way, and we should be thankful for it. But understand, a lot of the world does not live like that. Right? If you're a 12-year-old victim of human trafficking, and you're trapped in Moscow, or Amsterdam, or Madison, judgment of God can't come fast enough. Right? The world is, is, is full of evil. And we are blessed in that we don't have to experience the fullness of it. But the world is a cruel place. And the angel says, Lord, this is justice. And this is deserved. And this is actually a demonstration of your righteousness. Okay? And so at this point, the earth is just continuing to decay. Verse 8. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So earlier in the book of Revelation, the sun lost a third of its light. Now uh, there's a massive swelling of heat. And we don't know what that is. It could be some sort of solar storm. It could be any number of things. It could be, you know, I don't know. But... He's given the power to scorch men with fire. This will be global warming on a scale that nobody is anticipating right now. And notice the response. It says that men blasphemed the name of God. So after God has turned, after everyone who's received the mark of the beast is now stricken with some sort of illness, after all life in the sea has died, after all freshwater life has died, they are now in, they're out of water, and the heat is going up literally and what do they do? They curse God. They do not say, let's repent. Okay? This is, not, this is not God being mean 
this is the final opportunities are, are ticking away. And really, if, if you think of it, you know, it's like a countdown on a clock. We're watching just the last, if you will, the last seven seconds of the earth. And it's coming, and men blaspheme the name of God. They refuse to repent. Never underestimate the ability of God to love a hard heart, but never underestimate the ability of a heart to choose to be hard. We are capable of being massively stupid when it comes to rejecting or resisting the love of God. Verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. So the sun, so there's some sort of major heat wave, and now there's darkness. And it's, it's, it appears that it's a darkness that is actually uh, some sort of physical, physically painful darkness. So there's some kind of spiritual component here as well. And it says they're gnawing their tongues because of the pain, and again, they blaspheme the God of heaven. Again, after another warning, they still refuse to soften their hearts. And this, verse 12 the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and to the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, as is Jesus speaking. It says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Verse 16, back to John. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So the sixth angel, the sixth bowl of judgment, is the final preparation for the f- battle of Armageddon. And what's going to happen is the Euphrates River is going to dry up. Now, some people, the Euphrates River is actually slowly drying up right now. Um, there's also... So I've heard uh, a dam system in place that would also enable the, basically you could shut off the Euphrates River right now. So do they turn the dam off? Do they, does the river just dry up? I don't know. But what you have is the preparation. The waterbed's going to dry out, and on top of that, three frog demons, things, come out of the mouth of the dragon, come out of Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, and they're going to go out to gather the whole world to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And they gather them together in the place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So we talked about this battle last week. The battle of Armageddon is when the armies of the earth come together for a final, really at this point it would be World War IV, but the Lord is going to come down and they're going to say, you know what, temporary truce, let's beat God and then we'll beat each other. And the Lord will judge their armies. And we have Daniel gives us a little more detail about what this will look like. If you want to flip over to Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, we're going to read a decent chunk out of Daniel, actually. So verse 36, he's talking about the Antichrist. He says, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god. He shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. We're talking about the Antichrist. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a God of fortresses. 
And a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance his glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. <clears throat> Verse 40. At the time of the end, that's where we're at in Revelation, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, that's a reference to Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Chapter 12, verse 1. At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting content. contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, we could read that in Daniel and say, obviously this is an allegory. Or, we could read it and say, if we interpret Scripture as literally as possible, what do we see? Well, we talked about last week, the Antichrist will arise from the Mediterranean area, so he'll have predominantly a European-based empire, even though he'll more or less be ruler over the entire world, and he'll have a rebellion from the king of the south. It'll be an African rebellion against the Antichrist. And so he'll come through the glorious land, it says, fight the king of the south. And then the king of the east and the king of the north will come against him. And so, you know, if it's consistent with Ezekiel, and I think it probably is, the king of the north would be Russia. The kings of the east, really don't know. Could be India, could be China. Either way, at this point in Revelation, you're probably looking at some of the last big population beds on the earth. They're going to be coming against the Antichrist saying, you know what, ever since you came to power, everything has gone wrong. And so he'll come back up through Africa, and he'll wind up in Israel in the valley of Megiddo. And if you understand the way just the earth is shaped, the way the tectonic plates are shaped, that valley is really the center of the world. It's, it's, it's the junction between Europe, Asia, and Africa. And you can look at a map, and you, honestly, you're still always kind of like, well, where is Israel? Is it in Europe? Is it in Asia? Is it in Africa? So it's not kind of in any of them, and it's kind of in all of them. And so he'll swing down into the south, and he'll be coming back up. The other nations will be coming against him, and he'll say, okay, this is it. We're, we're going to just unleash all fury. We're, we're parked in the nation of Israel, and we're going to fight. And that is when the Lord's going to come back, when he gathers all the armies of the earth together to say, okay, this is it. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that bowl of judgment, we have Jesus saying, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. There's almost a little warning here to anybody who's reading the book right now. Hey, remember, you do not have to be here for this battle. You do not have to be around for this. Right? He says, I'm coming quickly. Be ready for my coming. I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who watches. 
and keeps his garments. Keep your clothes on, guys, in essence. Be ready to go. Live life ready to move out when Christ calls. You do not want Jesus Christ to come back for his church in the rapture and say, you know what, I really would have appreciated five minutes to say a quick, you know, 30 seconds to say a quick sinner's prayer. Really would have appreciated just a little more time to, to, you know, get off my phone and get serious about the Lord. I would have appreciated just a little more time to take this a little more seriously, the whole God thing, you know, this whole church thing, whatever. It wasn't really my thing, but man, I, in hindsight, I wish it would have been. And Jesus right here interrupts and says, I'm coming. Jesus Christ is coming. That's a, that's, a, that's a fact of the universe. Jesus Christ is coming back. That's as fixed as any mathematical formula, that's as fixed as any law of gravity or physics equation that you come up with. Jesus Christ is coming back. What's not fixed is what are you doing about it? What is your response? Are you prepared for it? Are you not? And we've, you know, we've said this as we've gone through. And Jude talks about Different people respond to the gospel in different ways. Some people just need to be reminded of the love of God. Some people need to be reminded that judgment is real and hell is real. And that you need to shape up. You need to quit walking in sin. You need to repent. And so Jesus interrupts himself, if you will, to say, hey, you know what? This is all coming, but I'm coming first. You do not have to be in this. You can surrender to Jesus Christ right now and know with assurance that you do not have to experience any of these bowls of judgment. And then verse 17, it says, And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as, has not, as had not occurred since men were on the earth. That's a big earthquake right there. Now, verse 19, The great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So the seventh bowl, the Lord said, it is done. And it's kind of reminiscent of you know, Jesus on the cross, that it is finished. And, and by that, he meant, you know, hey, the grace of God has come. The, the cup of judgment has been drunk by me. You do not have to drink it. And this, in essence, is, hey, the cup of judgment has come. And if you haven't let Jesus Christ drink it for you, you're going to drink it. And there's a great earthquake. It says, great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. We're going to get into that next week. Babylon is... Uh, Certainly there is an imagery context. There's a spiritual component to Babylon. Some people think there's also a physical city of Babylon that will be resurrected. I think that's entirely possible. Um, but Babylon becomes the symbol of the world system, of man's attempts to rebel against God, whether it be in economics, whether it be in spirituality, all these things the Lord says, I'm going to judge, not just, I'm going to judge the system itself. Okay? And then there's a massive hailstorm. It says, hail, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Some commentators say that's about 100 pounds. So if you get a worldwide hailstorm of 100-pound rocks falling out of the sky, this is what? This is the end of the earth. This is, this is the end of the judgment. Okay? And it says again what happened. Men blasphemed God. 
The human heart is capable of incredible stubbornness. But the love of God is capable of overcoming incredible things. Right? And so we read this, and, you know, we said at the beginning, this is not like super peppy writing material. But it's Scripture. God wrote it down. He expects us to read it and to take it seriously. And I like, I saw a thing this week. Somebody said, God did not write revelations so that we would build bunkers. He wrote revelations so we'd build bigger tables and invite people over and tell them about Jesus. And so I think it's a great approach to consider the judgment of God is real. And it's actually a proof of the goodness of God. It's a proof of his love and his righteousness. But just like Jesus says in the middle of the sixth bowl, hey, I'm coming quickly. You don't have to you don't have to worry because this book is not about the bowl judgments. This book is not about anything other than the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if that's the focus of the book, what do we say? We say, wow, I want to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want other people to understand the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to take it seriously, live like it matters. And so next week, just if you like the sort of the the view of where we'll be. We're going to cover the end of, as the Lord describes, the destruction of Babylon as the world system. And then Christ comes back. It's, it's going to, you know, most of Revelation takes a very linear approach of kind of ABC timeline. But there's a couple chunks. Last week was one. Next week will also be one where it zooms out a little bit. And so he's going to kind of come back around to the Battle of Armageddon. And then Christ comes at the Battle of Armageddon. And it's wonderful. Because he will bind Satan for a thousand years and he will reign on earth. And for a thousand years, the world will get to experience what earth was supposed to be. It'll get to experience a rest. It'll get to experience a Sabbath, if you will, of a, of a millennia of Jesus Christ as king on earth with Satan bound. And it's going to be phenomenal. But the Lord will first clarify who is willing to serve Jesus Christ no matter what, and who is unwilling to serve Jesus Christ no matter what. So that's where we go. And then next week after that is just really the final end where he describes the new heavens and the new earth and what comes after the end of the millennial kingdom. And after that, we finish the Bible. So you know what we do? We start it over because it never gets old. Lord, we thank you for your word. The power and the relevance and the ability to speak to us, even as we read it and, and understand the ability of these things to happen right now in our own lifetimes. The technologies that, that we couldn't have imagined, and yet as we read the prophecies, it, we understand that they could be very literal. You could be actually telling the truth, and we, we praise you for that, that we get to live in a time where we can understand your word in a way that other people, other generations haven't been able to. But Lord, with that comes the responsibility. And so we pray that you would, as we read this book, as we study it, stir up our hearts with a burden for the lost. Stir up our hearts with a burden to not enjoy our Christian club, but to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that you commanded us. We pray that you would remind us that you are with us always, even to the very end. And we thank you that we have the victory in Christ. And it is in his name that we pray, amen. 
If you have kids in class, please sign them out.